Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. We're here today with two very special guests, uh, Nikhil Krishnan of CB Insights and Nick Soman of Decent. And we are here to talk about the intersection of blockchain and healthcare. Nick, Nikhil, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. Nick and Nikhil, how did you guys both come to get interested in the intersection of blockchain and healthcare? Nikhil, perhaps you could start and then Nick, you could follow up what you're up to at Decent. Sure. So, I mean, it's no real surprise that kind of the whole blockchain space took off as a whole last year with crypto. So we had been sort of looking at this more generally last year and then sort of started taking a look at blockchain applications and more specific industry verticals. And so, you know, I've been doing healthcare research at CB Insights for three and a half, four years now. And so was interested to sort of dive into the intersection of the two. And, you know, when I was doing research for this, it was pretty clear that there weren't a ton of resources or even people that just understood the nuances of how sort of blockchain technology works, but then also how the dynamics of healthcare work. You're basically taking, you know, two insanely complex topics and combining them together. And so I was trying to just sort of wrap my head around it and put something out that was uh, a little bit more clear for people to understand. My story might be a little bit more personal. My parents are family practice doctors and my dad would ultimately retire as the chief medical executive of a 650,000 member HMO up in the Northwest called Group Health. And I remember being a kid and he would come home and I have always looked up to my dad and have frustration. He ran the doctors and hospitals side of Group Health's business and he had counterparts on the insurance side. And he would sometimes, when he was really uh, stressed out and I could see him getting overworked, he would grumble about how he felt like the insurance side of the business didn't really care about the patient. And I always wondered what that meant. And tried to figure out, you know, what, 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 what it was that was bothering him because he was my dad. Didn't really get it until later, but I was given some blockchain, some uh, Bitcoin rather in 2013, which was sort of how I got into blockchain and didn't think much of it. I thought, you know, this is for speculative kind of gambling at best. And I started to notice the communities that sort of formed around blockchain because I have thought a lot about how to motivate people in my career, both sort of as a leader and also as a growth guy. I built the first growth team at a company called Gusto. And I started noticing some characteristics of people that are into Bitcoin that were really interesting, where they were absolutely using word of mouth to share what this currency was with each other in hopes that other people would buy it and then their value would kind of go up. And that's, you know, again, kind of intriguing. I became an EIR at Foundation Capital and thought that I might do something interesting in the space had to buy my own health insurance and it was way more expensive than I expected. And I signed up for what's become a year long crash course in healthcare and understanding kind of fundamentally the misaligned incentives. I think one of the underrated aspects of blockchain and crypto is the incentive alignment that happens when thousands of people are clamoring for uh, the value of a particular currency. It's certainly part of what makes the space kind of exciting and also scary from the outside. And I, I got interested in whether there's a way to leverage that mechanic to better align incentives. Nick, can you get into a little bit what you learned over over that time where you're taking this course in healthcare that maybe surprised you or as you sort of thought about the you know the idea maze of where to pursue an opportunity here, 
how did you think about this approach as the, as the way to go, the decent approach, and what other opportunities did you explore? It's a really good question. So first of all, I, I had sort of signed on to be an entrepreneur in residence at Foundation Capital and told them that I was going to do something in blockchain. And obviously, this is a really interesting space, especially to VCs last year. And so they got excited about that. And then coming in, I started to look at the blockchain space and realized that we're really not ready for prime time for a whole lot of use cases that are being sort of bandied about. And so, you know, I had some VCs who remain nameless that were saying things like, you know, what does conspicuous consumption look like in the age of blockchain? And, you know, what, what would it look like if you, if you just did CryptoKitties part two? And that's not to knock, you know, anybody. I met Dieter, the founder of CryptoKitties recently at a DCG retreat. That's great. Um, that wasn't the type of business that I personally wanted to build. And I was getting ready to go tell the foundation guys, hey, sorry, you thought you were getting a blockchain EIR, but this is so much at the infrastructure phase that I'm going to go do something outside of blockchain. And in the late stages of thinking that through, I started discovered that the most interesting thing I found in healthcare, full stop, which is that a lot of the things that you think don't make sense in healthcare, the lack of price transparency, the lack of focus on service that we're sort of used to from being in other markets are fundamentally about the fact that most stakeholders besides the patient make more money when the total cost of care goes up. And so the idea maze, I can lay it out really specifically, is I discovered this thing called the medical loss ratio, which dictates that a traditional insurance company has to uh, spend about 80, 80% of the dollars it takes in, in premiums on care and things related to care. So if you think about it, that means they have to fit their entire admin costs plus profit into a fixed cut of the cost pie. And in a system like that, there's no getting around it. Between years, when they need to justify their rate hikes to regulators, they're actually rooting for the total cost of care to go up. And I think that's when I got obsessed with this problem in healthcare because it's very difficult to make people understand something that their salary tries to get them not to understand. It's very, very difficult to build a cost-efficient healthcare system when the large stakeholders are incentivized towards cost escalation. And we think we found an interesting way that leverages blockchain as well as other technologies to align incentives so everybody, including our members, benefits when costs are kept under control. The, the idea maze was really, hey, this is broken. Why? Oh, it's really because of these fundamentally misaligned incentives. Well, in that world, who has the most power? Oh, it's the fully risk-bearing insurance companies. What would it take to make one of those? And, you know, we're, we're certainly not at the end of the idea maze, but that's what got me here. Yeah, I mean, for starters, health insurance is arguably the worst subscri subscription product that any person ever signs up for. No one likes it. And it just keeps going up without providing additional value. So, um, you know, definitely sort of emphasize a lot of the things that Nick said. You know, I do, I am curious though, when you sort of went along this process and we talked a little bit about this, you know, where did you think was the best place to start in terms of maybe demographics not being served properly by their health insurer that you thought, hey, you know, this is where I kind of want to jump in and, and, and find where I can add some value. I'm glad you asked me that because I didn't follow standard sort of VC economic advice. The VC economic advice is always go where the money is. And if we wanted to go where the money is, we would be and this is something we may do in the future, making it easy for large employers to become self-insured and you know, take the roughly 20 to 30% cut on costs that you can expect when you move from what's called the fully insured model, where you're going out to a Blue Cross Blue Shield and saying, we want to pay you to provide insurance and to be a risk for our, uh, our employees and transition to a self-insured model where the company itself, usually with the help of a reinsurer, to protect against downside costs is bearing that risk. There's a tremendous amount of cost to be saved there. 
However, the group that I thought to be on fire was the group that I was a part of. So when I joined foundation as an EIR, I functionally became a freelancer. I had to buy my own health insurance. And the problem with buying on the individual market is, as you can imagine, you don't have any aggregated market power. So you're literally just buying whatever the insurance companies put out a plan at. And if you make more than, I think in California last I checked, it was like $90,000 for a family of four, you don't qualify for ACA subsidies at all. So you're just taking it on the chin. And my own premiums have been going up. I had friends that had decided not to become freelancers because it was so difficult to make the, the costs work out. This felt like a group that not only was being underserved, but a group that in a tremendously complex problem and system that is healthcare, we could eliminate you know, one of the major stakeholders by not having to target the employer and convince them for something that's fundamentally for the consumer. So we decided to start with freelancers. We're on track to launch in Austin, Texas next year, and we should be able to offer them a comprehensive insurance product that's meaningfully cheaper than they can get it on the open market. How does blockchain help here? The headline is we can offer a more transparent and fair system. To double click on that a little bit, part of the problem again is that these incentives are misaligned. And so if you could create a world where cost savings are passed back to the member, and there's one of a variety of ways to do that, there are ways to pass back the value to a member and to not be opaque about it. People have been building insurance co-ops for a very long time in a system where instead of some centralized entity taking a big cut, the three of us might, for example, all kick you know a couple thousand bucks into a pot and say, well, we hope that at the end of the year, there's money left. And if there is, we'll either take a a chunk back each, or we'll roll it forward into the next year. And something like that is a pretty rational way to approach this. But it's very, very different from the insurance company makes its money no matter what, and actually makes more money when the cost of care goes up. So our focus is to create something that feels a little bit more organic. And blockchain has some meaningful advantages related to the ease of offering rewards to a larger group of people using crypto assets as opposed to traditional stock, for example. Zooming out a bit, Nikhil, you just spent a few months creating a research report with CD Insights about the intersection of crypto or blockchain healthcare. Can you talk a little bit about what that that journey was like, what uh, what perhaps surprised you in your findings and what you learned uh, along the way? Yeah, definitely. You know, I think healthcare is one of those places where the more under the hood you look, the more like WTF moments you end up having. So this is definitely another, this is definitely another, another time of those. Uh, you know, I think that actually the really interesting when you kind of dive deep into this space uh, is how big of a problem not having unique patient identifiers is in the healthcare space. So for people that sort of don't know a lot about healthcare, uh, when you travel from one place of getting care to another, it's actually really hard for those two places to figure out that you're the same patient. So without these unique patient identifiers, one, data basically can get misidentified as it's being transferred from system to system, which results in a like, ludicrously high percentage of, of, of errors in just your patient profile. But then also there are massive businesses that exist to literally pull your data out of these systems get them from a lot of different places, figure out if you're the same person uh, along this entire sort of medical record, de-identify it, and then sell it for a lot of money. Like there are billions of dollars revenue businesses whose sole objective is basically to sell de-identified patient data. So it's kind of funny when we're, you know, the headlines talk a lot about things like Cambridge Analytica and how social media companies 
end up using our data when there are literally multi-billion dollar companies who on their front page of their website are like, hey, we sell 500 million anonymized patient records, come buy it. So just the sort of secondary market for patient data is so huge. And then also there's just so many problems with not being able to to sort of uh, track a patient throughout the care system. And so people are finding janky workarounds like using things like social security numbers, which are definitely not supposed to use for that. And one of the hopes actually and interesting parts about sort of blockchain technology as a whole is that you can actually create a sort of longitudinal health record with a single unifier that kind of travels with you uh, in the form of something like maybe a public address, private key sort of situation. So, so that was the part that was super surprising. It's just how big the opportunity is for just identification purposes and then also for, for data governance. So that you know, was, was very surprising how big that was. Nikhil, I have a question for you exactly about that. So there are skeptics who believe that some of the larger hospital systems don't want a truly interoperable electronic health record because they're, they're functionally creating walled gardens around their own patients. I, I can sort of see both sides of that argument. What's your take from, from digging in? So I think there's a difference between physicians and hospital administrators, which I think tend to get bundled to into the same. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think they get bundled into the sort of same category, but they're definitely different sort of incentives there, right? Your physician obviously wants to see everything about you if they can and would love to have interoperability. Whereas if you can move your data from place to place, patient leakage is definitely more of an issue from the administration side. So I'm not going to say that like hospital administrators absolutely do not want interoperability, but they're just definitely not incentivized the same way a patient might be uh, to let their data sort of move more freely. I love that answer. And do you see a world in the future where patients are actually selling their own health data? I mean, definitely. So one of the things that's fascinating is that Right now, we're, we're moving into this area where rare diseases and sort of specific uh, real-world evidence around things like cancer is becoming more and more valuable to drug companies. That's why you see more pharma companies trying to establish these direct-to-consumer relationships with things like apps for people with multiple sclerosis, et cetera. It's because those patients, their data is very valuable. Same thing with, for example, 23andMe and GSK's partnership. A big part of it is, hey, we can identify all the people with this rare variant, uh, rare mutation, we can basically then give the genotype, phenotype data to the drug company, and they can also potentially do outreach for more targeted clinical trials, recruitment. Um, it's really, really expensive to, to have relationships with these people with, with really rare disease data. And that data is just super valuable. Where guys at a high level, maybe Joe, that you start, uh, blockchain does or doesn't make sense as you know, for startups out there trying to build in healthcare, thinking about whether they should incorporate blockchain or crypto broadly, what, what framework would you recommend or how should they think about it? Yeah, so I think there are like a few separate but you know, potentially intersection, intersecting problems that blockchain has solved that healthcare sort of has in spades. So one is just reducing duplicative work. So anyone who works in the healthcare system can just sort of tell you that Basically, the amount of, of redundant processes that happen between people that probably could have just shared the data in the first place or just have like one shared sort of database with, with better permissions is just crazy high. So, you know, for example, a lot of the new consortia between 
some of the corporations are looking at things like just keeping their provider directories up to date because it's really expensive if, if the CMS finds out that your provider directories are out of date, you get fined for record, et cetera. And so instead of having like six different insurance companies call up each provider, see if they're the right address, et cetera, you can basically just have one sort of shared database with permissions to all to all the people who are involved. And that's not necessarily a blockchain. That can literally just be sort of a distributed ledger enterprise Google Sheets type of, type of deal. But those are like low-hanging fruit. You don't need to sort of deal with patient data, reduces duplicative work. It's helpful for everyone, win-win-win. So the other areas that I think applying sort of blockchain tech is really useful is when it comes to getting a bunch of stakeholders together where they have to meet some sort of external compliance requirement. So again, another area we sort of looked at is the pharmaceutical supply chain. So there's a new law called the Drug Supply Chain Security Act, I think, where everyone that's on this supply chain needs to basically at any time give a fully auditable record of who touched a drug when at a per unit level. And so unless you're on a system where everyone is sort of contributing, contributing sort of, you know, that they got the product, that it's the same unique identifier, et cetera, you're not going to have that. So, so having a system basically where everyone has a full record of everything that's happened at once makes it really easy for compliance and auditing in the future. Uh, something similar in sort of research design, clinical trials at the end, you sort of have to give this master file about everything that was done to patients and track you know, who did what, when. So, so when there are sort of external compliance requirements, there's more of an impetus for people to actually pick up these new solutions that make it really easy to track, to track actions. I really like that you wrapped up on what the impetus, which is a, a synonym for incentive for people to pick these things up. I guess I want to go back to the initial question, which was, you know, as you look at where blockchain doesn't make, doesn't, doesn't make sense, how would you think about evaluating whether startups are kind of stumbling on a valid use case. And I really agree with Nikhil's point. There, there's an easy way to look at this where if you're not dealing with a directory of data of some kind, there's an argument to be made that it's probably too early or you're, if it's not otherwise already proven, you know, through the mechanics of something like Bitcoin for your, your blockchain use case. And I think that the thing people miss both in blockchain and in healthcare, so you can kind of kill two birds with one stone, is that the magnitude and the power of the stakeholders involved. And just to put a little scope on this, healthcare is the single largest private sector employer in the United States, and also the single largest private sector lobbyist. So there are massive powers at play. And you have to fight the urge just like you would in any other startup, but I think particularly in healthcare, to think, oh, we should just do this because it's technically possible to do it and really ask yourself at every step, not just who's going to like this, but who's going to fight this and why. And I, I become very skeptical with that view of you look at EMRs without blockchain, electronic medical records, and the challenges they've had with physician adoption and even hospital system adoption. And yes, I agree that those two sets are different, but for different reasons, they, they often will fight implementation-related change. To say that a clunky new technology is going to come in and innately solve that without addressing the misaligned incentives that have sort of forfeited solutions in the first place I think it's sort of ridiculous. And so my, my least favorite type of blockchain pitch that I heard a fair amount of was, you know, people coming into the foundation office to pitch me and some of the partners there and say, you know, and on the third day, the nurse will teach the doctor to use our branded cryptocurrency. And it's just, uh, <laughs> that isn't how people work. That isn't how crypto works. People should really be careful to understand, like, 
there needs to be a big incentive for change or else change will not happen. And, and blockchain, if anything, is a, a challenge to that, not, a, not an aid. Yeah, yeah, healthcare is not a technology problem in most cases. It's a sort of distribution incentives problem. And I actually think that the rollout of electronic medical records kind of set this whole thing back by a really long time because it sort of sullied how people sort of view technology and sort of IT and new, you know, data structures in the healthcare industry. Like, if you ask any doctor, they just absolutely hate their patient record and, and it's just set up a bunch of really whack incentives in place. And it's not like people couldn't build a base better patient record. I mean, if you look at one of these things, you know, it's not super hard to imagine what it would, how it could be better. So it's really not a tech problem. It's more of a how do you enable new incentives problem, whether that's maybe from a regulatory perspective, which is sort of what I was talking about with these new laws coming into place, or it's how do we incentivize a new stakeholder of the system who has not necessarily had an incentive in the past and you know, one example is for his patients who just have not really had a uh, really had an incentive to to sort of contribute their data to places or keep their records up to date. But you can actually theoretically shift that. I, I think there's there's. I want to come back to the point you made just spot on that doctors are different from health systems. Unfortunately, health systems have recognized specific positive business thing for them happen if they aggregate all the doctors in a local geography. And I think people really need to understand this to understand where a lot of the tension is in healthcare. There are many doctors, including my parents and so many other folks, parents and children that got into medicine to help help people. And what's happening with these health systems is they're realizing that because the money is with the employers, so long as the employers feel they need to include your large health system in their plan, you can pretty much charge what you want to. And I'll, I'll give a specific example. So, what will happen is that well-meaning HR folks at companies who are thinking about going self-insured often will say, hey, all we need to do is figure out who our network's going to be. And as soon as you tell the employees of your high-touch company, whether it be tech finance or anything else, yeah, well, we decided to cut costs by not including this major local health system, they're going to revolt. Or at least if you're that HR professional, you're worried more about pissing off the employees then you are ultimately about the cost savings that don't really pass on to you. So unfortunately, what it creates is that this, uh, you know, he means the word escalation a lot, where the more power and aggregation these health systems can create, the less employee, employers can say no to them, and therefore kind of the more pricing power they have. And so my point is that, yes, doctors are different from health systems, but many of the positive motivations of doctors have sort of been co-opted into this health system model that you'll often hear described as fee-for-service, where you need to see as many patients as you can in a day. You need to make as many types of medical decisions that will create value for the health system as possible. And you are seeing kind of a, a fight against this coming in the form of what's called the direct primary care model. And Decent works closely with direct primary care doctors. But it's a really big problem. And a lot of doctors that have gotten into medicine are finding that they're highly burned out because they're not able to do the thing that they came into medicine to do because they're spending a ton of their time doing admin work for either the health system or the insurance company. Yeah, totally. I agree. What are the applications do you think make most sense of, of blockchain and healthcare? If you were, let's say you were starting a fund and its sole focus was to identify opportunities at the intersection of blockchain and healthcare, where would you be looking to invest or where would you want entrepreneurs to go pursue opportunities? In? I think the combination of you're looking for directories of data and it makes more sense for blockchain if there's a fundamental misalignment about who wants the data out there and who doesn't. 
And so a, a simple example we're looking at at Decent is what would a crowdsourced medical price directory look like where you could get people uploading the prices, including cash prices, which as you both know are sometimes cheaper than the negotiated rates for various treatments to create a system where folks could know what would expect to spend before leaving the house. That's an interesting example because medical price data is highly controversial. And so there's an actual reason you could imagine for a crowdsourced directory to be something that would be better stored in the blockchain than, than held in a centralized database. And, and that said, even with that simple example, you have that incentives problem. So what I'd want to see is, are you dealing with a form of data that's very controversial? And have you been extremely thoughtful about making sure all the stakeholders that are going to be required to get this data onto a directory where it can be valuable are really going to be aligned around that goal? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, actually a great summary. I think for, in my case, it's, I think there's less interesting stuff in the short term on the consumer facing side, personally, and a lot of really interesting stuff happening more in sort of the back office. So, you know, that can be a combination of, you know, for example, just tracking patient consent along where their data is kind of uh, going, whether that's from a kind of clinical trial or research standpoint, where there's a lot of different sites that are involved that sort of have to, you know, coordinate data together and sort of put it together, uh, sort of reconcile it in one place by the end. It's mostly in the in in the back end, either from sort of a compl- from a compliance standpoint or from a I have some very valuable data that I want to give governance and access rights to. So if you have a rare disease, if you have uh, some specific mutation, etc., I think there's a lot sort of more applications that can be built that are actually better for help to help patients track kind of their everyday data and keep it in a secure place and then give access rights to whoever wants it. I want to pile on the love fest and say that I agree 100% with Nikhil's answer. And the fact that we're offering a consumer-focused, individual-focused health plan does not actually contradict the fact that blockchain is better for use in kind of back office use cases. I like the way you said that, especially I'd say where the user doesn't have to know they're interacting with anything that resembles blockchain at the end of the day. It's just better for that. Now, we're building for the long term. And I think that if you were going to do something with the consumer-facing aspects of blockchain, the fundamental thing that's so obvious that people miss it is, hey, look at the interesting behavior that is happening among the folks that are really into cryptocurrency. Is there a way to harness that behavior in the form of some kind of financial reward to help people do the thing you want them to do? That's pretty simple, right? People have been trying to do different types of incentives with mixed success for a very long time, but that's not a technically complex point. Our hope is to kind of cover the back office stuff in the early days at Decent and then build out over time to embrace sort of more of the consumer use cases as they become ready to go online. Um, But I I certainly wouldn't think that I I disagree with Nikhil on that point. So Nick, I guess I have a question for you. You know, we've seen obviously a lot of these companies sort of do fitness tracking and get rewards in the form of cryptocurrency that you can, you know, pay for stuff. So, you know, I'm in the camp that I don't think that's a good standalone business because it faces a lot of the same problems that just any regular sort of, in, you know, forget crypto for a second, but just any company that just offers incentives for good behaviors face, which is that you already, you attract an already healthy population as opposed to converting an unhealthy population into a healthy one with these kind of rewards. So for one, I, you know, as just sort of a general note, it's funny because you see all these crypto companies kind of build business models that do already exist in the real world without, you know, kind of understanding whether they work or not. 
But I'm curious from your end, you know, do you think that using cryptocurrencies to sort of incentivize good behaviors is a viable business model? Yes, to the, the last question. Do I believe that using cryptocurrency to incentivize good behavior is a viable business model? Absolutely, yes. Do I believe that most wellness programs are worth the paper they're printed on? Absolutely not. So there's sort of, you asked sort of two questions in there. I think you and I probably find ourselves very aligned around there's no good evidence that wellness, which was supposed to be the savior of kind of human health for the last several years, is really creating more benefit than it does cost. There, there's no question about that. I think there's a lot of good reasons for that, but I think kind of fundamental to those reasons, and I don't want to get too much into some of the specifics of what we're doing because I'm trying to be thoughtful from a regulatory perspective, but here's an interesting fact. About 80% of the cost in a health plan is written through the primary care physician's pen, which means that it's either the primary care or much more likely the specialty care that the doctor is referring to. I'm not a huge fan of any model that looks like, oh, take 50 steps and we'll give you a Bitcoin. I think that stuff's silly and it's pretty much been proven not to work. But to your more general question of can cryptocurrency incentivize just behavior? I mean, if it, we, we have proven that cryptocurrency can incentivize behavior if only because of the, the number of folks out there that are acting very different than they used to because of sort of the rise of crypto. And so the question as always is how can you take that innate capacity for behavior change and really focus it on the right targets. And again, to answer your question, no, the right target is not, you know, getting my mom to take a walk in exchange for a Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, I don't think my parents would understand the full sentence. I would, I, <laughs> that full <laughs> sentence if you ask them. If you look out like five years out, 10 years out, what you can imagine sort of a success for, for decent, what, what might that look like? Straight up, that one's clear. We are a decentralized protocol. We have functionally created a centralized health insurance company so that we could farm out different chunks of work to the network over time. There's a tremendous amount of work to be done there, tremendous amount of primitives that we're going to need to rely on so we don't build them ourselves related to governance. And ultimately, this thing starts to look a lot more similar to, you know, the mock insurance company that I mentioned earlier, where you put money in, you're part of a group of people that does it. There's no major rent-seeking central entity. There is a nonprofit foundation that is making sure that the protocol is updated in alignment with local laws around the world. And people are getting as much possible value back for their healthcare as they can. And perhaps most importantly, and this is the thing I get excited about, remember I have doctor parents that try as they might could not escape the lure of Western medicine and sort of the you know, acute pharmaceutical solutions to everything. I am hoping that we can build enough pools that we can start to understand what really works and really doesn't with different types of care modalities. And so we have something closer to a source of truth around what keeps people healthy uh, than we've had before, along with the appropriate economic incentives to let people choose the, the care that's best for them. That's what the dream looks like. You know, how, how much of health insurance do you think needs to be centralized today versus in the future, what functions do you think health insurer will really need to do? It's a really good question. So. The hardest part, and I can say this as somebody that's about, you know, 99% of the way through working through both the federal and the state level regulations in order to launch a health plan in Texas, you know, we chose that state for a reason. The regulatory stuff is extremely difficult. And, you know, this is what makes me laugh at certain projects that you see that say, hey, it's going to be decentralized the second day. The government will just not allow you to do that. And you can say, well, code is law, but as long as there are people who are performing the admin functions, those people are at risk of going to jail. 
if you're not thoughtful about how you do this. I don't prefer to build something that necessarily centralized to start, but that's a, a legal reality. And I think in the distance, you can imagine stuff like claims management being farmed out to people with the requisite training. You can imagine things like even governance to decide what is covered by a pool being farmed out to people with the requisite training. I don't think you're ever going to fully escape the nature of well-meaning regulation, nor should you, that will dictate that there needs to be a certain amount of money available to cover potential claims. And so I, when, I, when I talk about a foundation that ultimately makes sure the protocol is in alignment, you can imagine translating some of that to a protocol where, you know, this thing doesn't flip on and function unless there's A dollars in wallet one and B dollars in wallet two, but there's still going to be something even beyond that abstraction layer, which is keeping up with the fact that laws change over time. And in order for this thing to work in one geography, let alone many, folks are really going to need to keep their eye on the ball. I don't see that changing ever. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Nikhil, what concerns or questions would you have with Decent as you currently understand it if you were to put your investor hat on? <laughs> oh, man. That's a, that's a tough question. I, yeah, I've I mean, heard most of them, so question. don't worry about hurting my feelings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess the main question is one you know, there obviously are some sort of uh, regulations on how personal health data is kept. And I think that's a place that a lot of blockchain companies struggle with a little bit because, you know, in some senses, keeping this patient data on a blockchain is actually, you know, kind of at odds with, uh, you know, personal sort of health data security as a whole. So I guess I'm just curious how you guys are going to plan on sort of keeping people's patient data safe. Then also, you know, how how much money can actually potentially be saved by implementing a blockchain solution here? And then lastly, is the timeline right? You know, are people ready for a health insurer that uses blockchain in some capacity? Like, are they going to know the difference? Is this something they're going to pick? Uh, you know, because healthcare is sort of, it, it, it still needs quite a few things, I think, before, you know, blockchain solutions kind of get, get implemented. We, you know, we're still just rolling out data standards, for example, right? So, so I'm just curious, you know, if you, actually, the biggest question is... Do you yeah, you, you have, those are good. You have three questions there. The, the three questions, I think, are... The second one was, how much money can it save? The third one is, are people ready? And the first one is, what about HIPAA, right? Right, exactly. Okay, so I'm glad you asked those. The first one, we are wrapping up work with a PhD who did his PhD on applying HIPAA compliance to technical systems. And so... All I can tell you is we're very much keeping our eye on that ball. And the simple way to not violate HIPAA is you're not stupid about what type of information you store on chain. Obviously, there's lots of different solutions that are well known for private data storage in centralized entities. I worked at Gusto. We had to deal with a whole lot of PII. We're being thoughtful both about what data goes on chain and also in working at the protocol development level with this gentleman that wrote a PhD on sort of this topic. And so we're, you know, being as mindful as we can there. The honest answer to both of the second two questions, the first one is how much money can we save and are people ready for this is I don't know. The second question, how much money can we save? What I feel good about and kind of our North Star at the end of the day is that so long as we are successful in building an economic system that actually rewards cost control, not only during the year, but between years, which makes us very, very different from the traditional insurance company, we'll find that natural limit. And I don't know what it's going to be yet, but it is not surprising when you look at how the incentives are set up that 
a system that economically rewards the largest and most powerful stakeholders for cost escalation truly gets that output. So I feel fairly bullish that between the $1 trillion of waste in healthcare in America and the misaligned incentives, we can make some traction there. The third question terrifies me. I think about it all the time. What if people aren't ready? I can tell you that what we're doing to mitigate it is trying to make sure that we're not a blockchain in the front company. We talk about ourselves as a healthcare company that uses blockchain. Um, but I don't know. One of the actual possibilities here is that no one will go near a health plan that has the word blockchain on it. I don't personally think that that will happen, but we certainly aren't putting that in our H1, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that does. As you guys think about behavior change, will it be easier for blockchain startups to change behavior for patients? Or for not? I think we disagree um, on this. I, I, think, um, I think it's going to be easier to, to change the behaviors of patients than doctors. And my evidence for that is just the slow adoption of electronic health records, though I admit that I'm probably conflating doctors and health systems in the same Yeah, I mean, I actually think, I think we're in the same camp. I, I just don't think the average physician is going to be really, really eager to start trying a new technology anytime soon, uh, especially considering how bungled EMRs kind of became. So, I, you know, I do think it'll actually be patients in, in sort of niche areas first. But I do think I, think, I think it's easier to create behavior change with patients, largely because patients are looking for, really actively looking for better solutions in healthcare. So if you can provide that to people, like there's a lot of pent up demand there. It just needs to be sort of orchestrated properly versus on the provider side. I don't think that same, you know, crazy demand uh, for, for new updated tech solutions exists. I would, uh, I would really agree with that and add one thing to it, which is, my strong suspicion is whether we get consumer adoption first or doctor adoption first, the early winners are not going to be the things that are parroting the stuff that is typically put on t-shirts and in Twitter posts related to blockchain. It's not going to be the ones that say we're the most decentralized system and it's not going to be the ones that say, you know, Satoshi, it's going to be the stuff that where blockchain is mildly better at doing the boring back office work than the existing solutions um, is where I expect we'll find a winner, which means that everybody in this space is really focusing their eyes on sort of the loud minority of use cases, um, which are the things that seem philosophically aligned with blockchain. We are slowly discovering the things that it's actually good for. And I don't know how much overlap there really is between those sets. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great point. It's, it's interesting because one of the things that sort of, I generally fundamentally believe is that, you know, companies that are building sort of tech first full stack solutions to whatever problem in healthcare uh, they're tackling or you are probably going to be better long-term bets. So, you know, if you're sort of building insurance, it's probably going to be better bet to be on Oscar than a person that sells a white label claim solution. If you're, you know, tackling pharmacies, it's probably better to be a pill pack than it is to be someone that's selling a tech solution to pharmacies. But with blockchain systems, I'm actually not totally sure because you need to actually interplay pretty well between existing centralized entities and also bring sort of some of these positives from a decentralized system together. I think it's going to be really hard in the short term to have this sort of bottoms up blockchain first solution to upend the system because, because you need to actually interplay with the system properly. I think that's right. The only counterpoint I would make to that is the problem with trying to sell a solution is that you spend all this time selling and you don't a lot of, spend a lot of time tinkering. So I think one advantage that the bottoms-up solutions, if we're going to call them that, will have versus the folks that are trying to sell a blockchain solution to existing systems is when invariably 
it's not quite good for the things that they wanted to do with it in this very, very early days of us having expectations of what it's going to be good for. If you're selling a product that, especially one that has, you know, a meaningful unit costs and it doesn't work, the tendency I've seen from sales organizations is to try to keep selling as hard as you can. And a nice benefit of actually being kind of the keepers of the technology and needing to build it from the ground up is I think you can translate intellectual honesty to action faster and move from, hey, you know, we thought this is going to be good for price transparency and interoperable electronic medical records, but it turns out the only thing people want it for is, hey, it's a nice bonus that's kind of better than cash and stock for doing smart things. I don't know what we're going to learn, but I do know that we're not going to be trying to shill a product or a system if we find out that it doesn't work. Um, and that's kind of an advantage of, of having some time to tinker and to build things from the ground up. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Nikhil, I have a question for you. And actually, I'd love both of your thoughts on this. So what if we're all just wrong? What if the three of us have invested the last multiple years <laughs> in a technology that means almost nothing? Uh, I'd love to hear each of your sort of, you know, 2030 eulogy for Remember Blockchain. <laughs> what, what happened? If, if we're wrong about this, why, what happened? What was wrong? I will shed tears, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, you know, I, I, I think it, it is kind of an interesting question, right? Like there, there's so much kind of hype and excitement around the space that part of us can, can forget that, well, there's a possibility that it actually all goes to zero. I mean, we, it's not like we haven't seen that with previous tech cycles uh, in the past. So, so it's a good point. I mean, I think the thing that really at least excites me about this space is actually, I mean, you kind of brought this up, but how much excitement there is about the space. It's kind of like a meta thing, right? Mm -hmm. People are so eager to find these solutions that kind of remove these distrusted third parties that it would actually be kind of a shame to see, to see it kind of go down just because I, I think people are, are sort of sick of large sort of third parties who've been making tons of money doing God knows what, and they're not totally sure and not having great experience. And this is, obviously very acute in healthcare. And then suddenly there's this technology that sort of promises, hey, we can remove some of these third parties. Like, sure, it might be overhype and, and, and there's a little cart before the horse happening. But I think just that general sentiment and excitement and, and the amount of sort of talent is attracted to this space is sort of indicative in and of itself. And so even if it's not blockchain itself, which is, you know, maybe the like, you know, the be all solution, it, it just sort of, I think, has tapped into this just general sentiment in society and amongst consumers. Yeah. You can answer that question in multiple different ways, but one way to phrase it is, you know, in the early nineties, there was sort of this, um, the internet was coming around. There's sort of this like internet versus intranet versus like, you know, private internet, public internet, similar to how the, you know, sort of the companies wanted to use private blockchain versus public blockchain. And there's sort of talk at the time as there is now that, Hey, the intranet or the private blockchain isn't really that game changing. And it's sort of, or, or that disruptive. And I think in terms of a, one eulogy for 2030 could be that, you know, there was an internet in the 90s, but maybe there's no real use for blockchain and actually private blockchains, you know, get the job done pretty well. And thus, you know, Facebook, Google, Amazon are still running the world. <laughs> Man, I, my eulogy is very similar to yours, honestly, Eric, which is, I think regulatory is, is a huge shutdown risk, but not in the way that everybody expects. I think everybody expects it's, oh, you know, the government couldn't get its act together and give us favorable regulations and it squashed innovation. I think there's another thing that's going to happen 
I think the American legal system is going to run headlong into the decentralist ideals. And at some point, somebody's going to throw out the first massive class action lawsuit against a intended to be distributed system that still has an owner when you look at the, you know, domain registrar and what's possible and how it could happen is the lawyers get their eye on, Hey, people are pissed because they lost their money and we're not, we don't give a crap about this, you know, decentralized ethos. We see this person's name at the front of the website, even as an early developer, even as the person who's involved in the foundation and we're still going to sue the pants off that person. And specifically how that would happen, it would not be with a bang, but with a whimper. What would happen is people would say, okay, there's too much legal risk in investing in that kind of entity. And the VC funds start to dry up. And then the angels typically follow the VCs. So they're not putting money into it either. And everybody rediscovered the value of creating a centralized corporation with the appropriate sort of protections. Um, I, could, I could sort of absolutely see things going that way because I think the, the trope that code is law is really meeting its natural limits now. And we're going to remember pretty soon that law is actually law. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, that's kind of an interesting take. I think, it'll, I think it, it is going to be fascinating to see kind of what plays out between the merits of centralization versus decentralization. You know, one of the things that I was thinking about when I was doing this research is through the process, I, was, I downloaded all my health records through the Apple uh, Health app, which if you haven't done it, highly recommend it. It's I very, saw your tweet cool. and I did it because of your tweet. Thank you. It's very good. Oh, yes. It's very cool. And, and the, the thing that I, that I sort of thought about when I was doing this is, you know what, there is some benefit to the to centralization here. If something goes wrong, there's like an entity I know exactly that I'm supposed to go to to like fix it. Two, I mean, Apple can basically, you know, brute force its way into these solutions because people know who they are. They, there is a like, you know, point person that's that's basically like in charge of doing this with bringing the might of Apple. And in that, through that process, it's actually brought about this like fantastic product because it was centralized, right? <laughs> and so as I was thinking about the difference between decentralized patient records or centralized ones, the reality is that I just want a specific end goal, which is I want to be able to track my data and, and give access right to of my data to the people that want it. And there are businesses whose incentives are aligned to allow me to do that. It doesn't really matter the means in the middle of how that happens. You know, so, uh, it could be a centralized solution or decentralized one. It's just, I think people are conflating the means of getting about to the end solution with, with actually what we're, the problem we're trying to solve. It is interesting. We, in, in the sort of language of blockchain, people you know, use the word sovereign a lot, you know, particularly around money as it relates to, you know, freeing it from, from government control. But we haven't really talked about you know, health records in, in that context. And if you imagine a world in which, you know, the blockchain utopias, among other things, you know, sovereign individual, people are a lot more mobile. You can, you know, access your money from wherever in the world. I wonder why there isn't more movement around that in the same way uh, as it relates to health records. I can tell you that people yeah. are very, very excited about it from, you know, my work on the front lines. They're always a little disappointed when I say that if we're going to get into that game, we'll get into it backwards. We have to create a system of incentives by which we can get people to do things that are good for them and good for the system. And if we can do that, then attaching your medical records becomes sort of a, a an interesting second piece. But, you know, I, I always come back to incentives and I don't think anybody has really cracked how we're going to get the folks who need to be on this to support it in the near term. Yeah. I mean, I think the, uh, you know, I think the reality of this is 
that the, the difference between something like money and something like healthcare is that people only interact with healthcare exactly when they need it versus money is sort of something that you interact with on a day-to-day basis. It's sort of informed a lot of your decisions, et cetera. You know, it's not like I'm checking my health record every day, right? So the issue is just that, like, I don't think it's top of mind for most people, especially if you don't, you know, if you're just generally healthy. So one question is, how do we kind of incentivize people to be more proactive about their health? Or on the flip side, how do we more passively capture people's health data um, before they actually go to health institutions so that they are actually the generators and the capturers of their own health data? And we're seeing that with this new wave of consumer diagnostics and wearables, et cetera. If the patient themselves starts generating more data before they actually enter the hospital, it sort of changes the power dynamic a bit between the provider and the patient, and the patient record sort of sits at the middle of, of both of this to sort of, um, you know, that's kind of, I think, the, the catalyst for if we ever have personal health records or decentralized health records or whatever, we really need to be generating more data as patients than, than, than healthcare institutions who are generating it for us, putting it in their own health records, et cetera. I like that point. And I think Apple is putting itself in an interesting position as sort of an early arbiter of a lot of the data flow. Uh, the second thing I checked in the Apple uh, Health app after I followed your suggestion and connected my health records is, indeed, it's talking to some other apps that I use. I have a shape of scale that Dan Ariely makes that will track its records back into that same health app. And so if Apple can successfully become kind of centralized to the data flow, it'll have a whole lot of leverage to speak for a minute about the current centralized reality Um, Even with these existing health systems, I don't want to say iTunes for healthcare, but to have that sort of data and have real control of it and then start to be able to nudge the patient, that's a lot of power. I guess I want to add a third path that I don't really love, but I think it should be called out as viable to the tunic hill that you listed about how we can kind of advance this problem. You know, scare tactics work too. I think most people, whether they mean to or not, they conflate doctors with healthcare. And I think just connecting a couple threads that you've brought up, Nikhil, in this call, the fact that there's these massive health systems and then there's these third-party companies that are often transacting with these health systems to sell your patient data, this is the thing that we sometimes worry that Facebook is going to do in the future. This is the thing that we you know, say that we're anxious about related to social media. I think the appropriate campaign to show folks, hey, this is even more you than your recent tweet or your recent Facebook post it's certainly more private and more sensitive, and it's already being sold by these third parties. I think there's a little bit of a wake up that may or may not happen with regard to people looking at their healthcare and instead of seeing kind of the kindly family doctor, seeing these monolithic massive health systems behind it that are making a buck off their backs. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great point, especially because with Facebook, you know, it's not like a lot of these practices are new, right? Like Facebook has been has been sort of the middleman of your data and advertisers for a very long time. I think people just really don't like Facebook right now. And sort of, (laughs) it was like a, it was just a, you know, on their personal lives, they don't like it. And then you have this sort of Cambridge Analytica thing, which kind of catalyzed an entirely new wave of, wait, where's our data going? Um, And I think healthcare kind of has all of the makings of that right now where people are just really upset with the healthcare system. They're not totally sure where to point their finger of anger to. And, and I think you'll have a scandal like, a, you know, some, some massive leakage or something along those lines where people are going to be like, hey, wait, what's going on? And, you know, you saw inklings of this, you know, for example, again, with the GSK 
23andMe stuff, if you were, you know, just looking through Twitter and just seeing how people are reacting to it, they're not happy. You know, they're like, even though, you know, you sign a consent form at the beginning of contributing your data, people are just not happy that, wow, okay, my data is being monetized again. So, you know, I think, I think we're sort of, we're in the perfect storm right now for something, exactly something like that to happen. Uh, Nikhil, you've done a lot of research into what Amazon, Apple, and healthcare. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit to each one? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition to the blockchain stuff, right? Because it's like we have these massive centralized entities who basically are now entering the healthcare space and actually for the first time, I think making a lot of the health institutions that are currently in this space scared. And so they're actually having to like existing healthcare institutions are trying to figure out, hey, what is my comparative advantage? How do I become more consumer friendly? The way tech companies are, because they're sort of coming in my space versus uh, these blockchain companies, people are like, okay, cool. <laughs> you know, it, it took, takes these massive, I think, centralized tech behemoths to actually push the healthcare system in any one direction. And the you know their their comparative advantage is pretty clear right tech giants have a direct access point to consumers and they have a strong brand which i think is the biggest thing i trust amazon to serve me the most convenient options i trust apple to sort of you know keep my data safe i trust that google is going to give me the most relevant option when i search it you know, there's a funny study because, you know, I, Nick, you probably may have seen this study, but there's a study that looked at health insurance claims to see where people were getting their MRIs done. And people would drive past six cheaper MRIs <laughs> to go to the MRI that their physician recommended, even though there's a health insurer tool that helps you price shop for better MRI services because everyone hates their health insurance company. No one wants to use it. No one wants to price shop with this entity that they don't trust and don't, you know, just don't vibe with as a whole. Uh, yeah, and, and you don't, so, you don't get a cut, especially if it's after their deductible has been paid. So why would they care? Yeah, so exactly. So versus these tech giants where it's like, hey, you know, Apple releases this EKG watch and people are losing their shit over it, right? Because people love Apple products or Amazon, you know, starts, let's just say they start, uh, releasing, you know, doing online mail or pharmacy. Like people are going to be very excited about that versus when existing healthcare institutions try and, you know, release new products or whatever, people just don't want to interact with them. And so I, you know, I think, I think these tech giants are really actually pushing healthcare into this new era. Uh, even if they don't do it themselves, they're going to make the existing people shape up. Yep. I know Google's working on some really interesting stuff related to medical data as well. And hopefully most of the stuff that's being done across these tech giants is stuff that ultimately will be able to be tapped into by other innovators and startups that don't have that level of scale yet. I, yeah, totally. I mean, the biggest issue that healthcare has ever had is that it has lacked a platform. We just don't have platforms in healthcare where third parties can develop on top of, make it easier to spin up, et cetera. I, I think that that's that is basically a race to get to that right now. And all of three, all of the tech giants are really trying to find a different way to go about that. Amazon probably going closer to the self-insured employer route and the claims route, uh, Apple going through the personal health record route, and then Google going through the partnering with, you know, hospitals and med device companies, et cetera. Route. So I, I think right now it's really just a race to see who can build the healthcare data platform. 
and it's going to be good for the consumer. I mean, even if ultimately I end up competing with some of these folks, I'm very, very excited about that because this is a broken part of the human journey that either certainly there's a lot of bad that could be correctly said about big tech, but we will end up with better data and more transparency and, and lower costs if we really see these companies leaning in. Absolutely. It's going to, it's going to be a good outcome for patients regardless. So excited to see that. The reason we haven't had platforms, the reason it's taken so long is largely regulatory or, or what's changed that will allow platforms to exist. So one thing that I think is funny is that people or rather healthcare institutions always use HIPAA as an excuse to not share data between yes. entities, which I think is incredibly ironic because like the whole point of HIPAA when it was introduced was to give, give patients the ability to access their data when they wanted to. So, you know, it's kind of a funny irony in how this, that all shaped out. So I think people will use regulations as the excuse for why it hasn't happened. But I think the reality is, one, there has been no entity incentivized to do this. And two, we really lacked data standards. Um, there's a new standard that's out called FHIR, F-H-I-R, which has gotten a lot of support from people in the tech community to build with. And so, again, if you check in the Apple app, you can actually see underneath in the, in the app itself, the fire code, which is really, really cool. But I think, I think we're sort of hitting this point where it's like you have these new players who are super heavily incentivized to build platforms out and then now sort of data standards in place to sort of to make sure that they're all kind of on the same page. I think there's another reason too that's worth calling out. So I'm a veteran of the Facebook platform wars. I was a Facebook developer early on and I used all the tools they made available to developers to be able to pull user data, to be able to blast, you know, massive growth curves across the Facebook ecosystem. And I think folks are pretty hip to the tech platform life cycle now, which is you come out with a new platform, you offer tremendous amounts of utility and often user data to developers to come use it. And then you watch the platform grow in strength. It ties people back to your core company, which might be Facebook, might be Google, um, Apple, etc. And then at some point you start to say, you know, we've made a lot of headway with this platform and we've grown a ton on its back in part due to the work of these developers. And now it's really time for us to focus on user experience and shut down developer access to member data, shut down developer utility. This is a well-known playbook. And I think if you think about that mapping onto people's personal health data, I, I can understand why folks have been a little skeptical to give third-party developers kind of an unencumbered ability to play with human health data, you're going to need a pretty constrained set of data that folks can, can work with because that traditional playbook of just making it all available and hoping people don't screw up too bad, I, I think will work less well when it comes to sort of human health data. Yeah, and you need patients to basically give consent every single time that happens, which you know, again, in theory, is actually one of the areas where a blockchain system could make sense is traveling consent and sort of a audit trail of who's accessing what data and when. So because this is very highly sensitive data, so I do totally get why you would want to put some safeguards around it. And I like your point of getting consent at every step just because my brain is wired for incentives. I actually want to tell you a funny story real quick. I think if you offered people money every time their health data was possibly going to be shared, you'd have a shocking amount of uptake. I think we talk about privacy until we realize that an alternative is 
cash in our pockets. And I'm not saying that's the way it should be, but I'll, I'll tell you something that happened recently. So as I mentioned, we're working with direct primary care doctors and we're doing a lot of customer development to make sure we serve this group well, because fundamentally one, fundamentally one way to look at decent is it's a wraparound health plan that puts direct primary care at the center. And for folks that are listening and don't know, direct primary care is a model where the patient pays a flat rate for each month and all of their primary care needs are covered. So it's pretty interesting because unlike the fee-for-service model where people, patients come in and you do something to them and you get money, every time a patient shows up, they're actually costing you money because they're paying the same flat monthly rate. So there's a lot to like about it from an incentive standpoint. But I, I came into these customer development conversations with direct primary care doctors figuring they would never give us any access to information on the referrals they were making, for example, for their patients and talk to them about it. And I realized, hey, these are people that have broken away from the existing healthcare system because they were tired of admin overhead. We cannot give them additional admin overhead. We have to make their lives easy. But if we can actually make their lives easier, whether that's the tools that we build for them or whether it's cutting them in on upside of making smart recommendations for the patient, they're super willing to play ball with us. These are small business owners that are trying to get out from under the admin overhead. And, and I think very similarly, you know, it's very high-minded for us to talk about data privacy. Many people are, are more than willing to share their data broadly, but they feel they should be getting a cut as opposed to the entirety of that cut and that monetization going to a third party that has sort of nothing to do with them. Um, and so I, I would expect to see more more value redistributed to the owners of the data who at the end of the day in my mind should be the patients. Yeah, I think that's a great point. If blockchain really starts to take off, who, who's well positioned and who's poorly positioned? Yeah, so I think the people that are poorly positioned for sure are companies whose business models revolve around uh, buying and aggregating these patient data sets in the absolute form of what a you know blockchain system looks like you patients basically get governance access of their data. And so trying to brute force this is going to be a, a more and more vulnerable business model as, as people sort of more willingly give up their, their, their data themselves. So I think, I think data hoarders as a whole, either selling it or trying to keep it to themselves and pretending like data hoarding is some kind of moat, those are the companies that are definitely most at risk, I think. Companies best position. I, I, I do think that there are there are some low hanging fruit use cases that we sort of talked about. So anything that sort of can can benefit from a better back office solution in the short run. So we talked a little bit about health insurance carriers and and a lot of different admin kind of functions. Um, and I think implementing sort of solutions that just reduce that overhead uh, will really help actually a lot of existing entities. I uh, couldn't agree more with Nikhil's answer. Just to double click, I think it's data hoarders, but data hoarding itself could be understood to be a subset of folks who make their money through lack of transparency and hiding information. And so I think where we might not be on the same page, which is fine, is I think that describes a ton of healthcare, including folks that we don't think of as traditional data brokers. If you look at the alliances between these massive hospital systems and insurance companies, who will literally write into their contracts that you cannot share the prices in your health system, in, in my health system with your members. And if you, even if you can do that, you can't do it in a way that favors the lower prices. These are literally being put into these contracts. And my, my grand ambition and hope for blockchain, which certainly, you know, connects with, with where I think things are going, but perhaps they're not the same thing at the end of the day, is anybody who's taking advantage of ambiguity and lack of transparency 
in a way that's not in service of the patient should feel real scared um, by what's coming. It doesn't need to be decent. I don't know what it's going to be, but I, I think that Ben Horowitz said it well, which is that the new killer feature of this clunky new database system is trust where digital trust didn't exist before. And so if your model is predicated on lack of trust or failures of trust or worse yet, propagating failures of trust, I, I, I am hopeful that blockchain is coming for you. Yeah, I mean, it, it is pretty crazy how many businesses literally exist because price transparency doesn't exist. That's just a, that's just a wild concept to me. Yeah, we're working on that pretty directly, so I'm excited to catch up more about it, but it's it, the, the depth of the problem is sort of flabbergasting. The title for this episode might be The Blockchain's Coming for You. <laughs> I, I love it. And Nick, I also just want to call out, you, uh, you, know, you, you began the podcast referencing Common Sense, and we had, you ended referencing T.S. Eliot poems, so full, full range. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Comes full circle. I thought this is great. Um, I really enjoyed talking to both of you. Yeah, thanks so much, Eric. Yeah, thank you guys for, for coming on the podcast. It's been a fantastic episode. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.